From First Family Church in Ankeny, Iowa, you're listening to a message from the series Traction, Getting Past Your Past. For more information and messages, visit our website at firstfamily.church. All of you have an accent, whether you admit it or not, just like I do. Those of us from the South, we just have a stronger one, all right? In fact, accents tell others kind of where we're from. They kind of let, us, let others know kind of what tribe we belong to. I can recall when we first moved here from Atlanta, it was back in 96. I don't know if it was the early spring, honey, or it was the winter, but I remember being at Pizza Hut in Ankeny. It's now a dental office. Um, and I was there with a friend. I forget who it was. I ordered the pizza buffet, and the lady came to get our drinks, and she said, what would you like to drink? And I said, No. Sweet tea. I had yet to be removed from that drug. And so <laughs> I said, sweet tea. And I said it a lot more southerny than I just did to you. She said, we don't have that here. And I said, well, I don't think it's called sweet tea if you add stuff to it later. It has to be, has to be made with it in there, you know, hot and it melts. And so we laughed about that. And then she said to me, you're not from around here, are you? I said, no, and uh, she said, where are you from? I said, oh, I'm from the south, and actually the southeast, but I just said the south, and she goes, oh, Kansas City. <laughs> I said, no, I'm a little further south, a little, a little more east, and so we laughed, and, and so for a number of years that happened. I still have a hint of my accent. It's just never going to go away. It's where I was raised, and you know, Jew and I laugh because a lot of times we feel like things like your accent and things you learn in your home, they, they almost seem genetic, you know. They're really not, biologically, but they're so ingrained, you just sometimes feel like you can't stop them, right? Well, fast forward about 10 years, we're at a freshman football game for our son. And, and you're going to think this is incredibly cheesy and really odd, but it's what happened to us. We were at the game, and Brett was playing, I think it was either the Ankeny Stadium or the Northview Stadium, I'm not sure which one, but we were in the middle of all the parents, and so you're cheering for the team, you're cheering for your son, and there's a set of parents or a set of people, and they're cheering, we think, for this guy named Hans, because every few plays we hear this chant from the crowd kind of behind us, go Hans! At least we think that's what they're saying, it sounds like that to us. And, you know, I'm just 10 years into this Midwestern culture from the South. I'm thinking, Hans. And then I realized, oh, and we both kind of commented, oh, Brett's got a friend named Hans. And he did. Ironically, he had a friend that's on the team with him named Hans. So we thought, this is an amazing culture that you can actually be kind of on the B team in freshman football and get your own cheering section. That's just incredible. We like this school, right? And then a few few seconds later, go Hans! And we just kept thinking, that's odd because he's not even playing right now. Like, he's, like, this is awesome. And then we just kept listening, and it's like the third quarter, you get to the fourth, and I think the Holy Spirit illuminated our minds. <laughs> I say that facetiously. They weren't saying, go Hans. They were saying, go Hawks. But we weren't hearing the K, and, and our ears must have been messed up, but we were hearing, go Hans. And they were saying, go Hawks. I wondered at the moment, like, who says Hawk like 
Hawk. Like, it must be some cheering section from Boston, right? They're here cheering for Hans, right? And they can't say it right either. Now, if you'd asked me how to cheer for the Hawks when I was in the South, it would have had a lot more A's than just one, okay? I won't tell you how it would have sounded. We've learned how to say and hear Hawks. Some of you can't even say Hawks because you're from Ames. I get that too, okay? (laughs) My point is, it's interesting how your accent can give you away. You can either assume some things, you can tell some things. It's just kind of like a good grid that kind of clues you into someone's roots. I mean, if you're from Australia, you'll know it in a few seconds. Just talk to them. Or Britain, or America, or Texas. Our accents just kind of give indication as to our roots. Did you know that there's a grid for the roots of regeneration as well? There's a biblical framework that we can lay over our life and find out, does my life bear the accents of someone genuinely born again? Does my life speak in ways that says to others, I belong to God? We're going to investigate that grid this morning in week number two of our current series called Traction. We're looking a little deeper at The first reason some folks never get past their past, the reason some folks never make traction, they never grow, they never really see actual change happen, and it's this, the first reason we're looking at is because there is a lack of genuine regeneration. Now over these eight weeks, we're going to talk about six things that actually keep us in our ruts. This is just message number two on this first one that often it's a lack of genuine regeneration that keeps people stuck in their ruts, unable to gain any traction. This grid that will help us really come to terms with, have I really been born again? Am I genuinely, authentically a child of God? Is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So will you turn there? And let's kind of unpack the first few verses of this chapter, the first 11 of them, and let's... Take some time to to see the grid that he brings to our attention. Now, I need to make sure you understand some things about this grid in advance. It is a grid of delightful clarity, all right? In fact, there is so much clarity in this grid and in the thread of Scripture that you will probably have some moments of, of intense conviction today. Because some of this will fly in the face of maybe what you've heard just growing up in America. In the American version of Christianity. Or perhaps the uh, television version. Or maybe the quick soundbite version. I want to encourage you just to let the Word of God be the primary source of what we believe. All right. At the same time, there's good clarity. There's also going to be some mystery. You're going to have some questions. They're like, well, how does that work with this? And what does that mean here? I admit to you, I will not be able to explain this perfectly. I'm limited by my, own human, by my own human shortcomings, but I will explain it to the best that I can. And so we're looking at a grid that will have some mystery and clarity, all right? Combine them, and we're going to find that it's actually a beautiful grid that God gives us for understanding 
where our roots are? And does our life speak with accents that say we belong to God? Now, you may say, well, Todd, I know I'm a Christian. I know I'm born again. Fantastic. I'm still glad you're here today. You know why? Because this will help you in those that you're dealing with, how you interact with your culture, those around you, perhaps your children, other friends, your small group. So this is not a message that you're thinking, well, I've already checked that box. I'm done. I'll see you in 45 minutes. Wake me up. (laughs) I want you to stay engaged because I think this will help us all understand just exactly what it means to truly be born again, to be saved, to be regenerated, all right? Let's read the first 11 verses of this text, and then we'll break apart the grid. I'd like to take a few questions today. I'm not sure I will be able to. We'll see. Uh, But let's first of all just unpack this grid. Verse 1 of chapter 15, the Bible says this. Here's Paul writing to the believers in the city of Corinth. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you. So they had heard it before. Paul's reminding them now of this all-important truth called the gospel. He's reminding them of that. He says, they receive this gospel in which you stand and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preach to you. What was that word? If you look back in verse 1, it's the gospel. This is the gospel, the word that he preached. It's what saved them. He says here, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance that, that which I received. So here is the gospel, the word. Here it is in its nutshell form. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That He was buried and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And that He appeared to Cephas, that would be Peter, then to the twelve, and then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, and though some have died, or the phrase here, fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, speaking of the work, it wasn't he that worked, it was the grace of God that was working with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Three elements to the grid that I think surface from this text that help us find out does our life speak with the accent of salvation? First of all, there's the grid of what I would say content or gospel, excuse me, gospel contact. It's, it's understanding that regeneration, salvation necessarily mandates gospel contact. Notice the words in verse 1 and verse 2 that speak of contact with the gospel. Are you there in your Bibles? He says, I preached this to you. So there's some contact there. They were hearing something, right? He says they received it. There's a a contact word. They stand on it. That's a contact word. They're being saved by it. That's a contact word. And they're holding fast to it. That's a contact word. In multiple ways, Paul is saying, when the gospel came to you, it was a contact sport. 
In other words, there's no osmosis happening to us unaware by us or unintentionally. This is not a salvation by proxy. Oh, well, I guess if it happened to you, I can just kind of lay claim to that from a distance. What you have here is up close. You have encounter language. You have contact-based verbs and nouns. So it says to me something, that when salvation lands, it's because someone has come in contact with the gospel. The gospel is contact-sensitive. It needs, watch this, actual time and place and space in real-life situations where people preach the gospel or they share the gospel. People hear the gospel. People receive it. They accept it. And people are actually, in real time and space, saved by God. All right? The gospel is contact-sensitive. Now, I bring this to your attention because in America... There is a tendency for this phrase to get some traction. And it's not only an unfortunate phrase, it's an untheological phrase. It's an incorrect phrase. I heard it, uh, I've heard it for years, but I heard it once when I was witnessing at Summerfest. That's coming up this weekend, you know. Uh, Ankeny's kind of annual weekend family fun getaway kind of thing. It's a lot of fun and I like going by there. In some years, I'll just simply take a little survey tool that I have, and I'll stand at key points. And as folks enter, I'll just say, hey, you got 60 seconds for a survey about religion. And so it's kind of a way I, that God just led me to use to, uh, to witness to people. And I want to just always, as Paul told Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. And by the way, if you want to go with me this weekend, send me a note. Uh, text me, email me, fill the card out and say, Todd, I want to go and just kind of watch and do things with you. I'll, I'll kind of show you what I do. It's not perfect. But it fits me, and it might fit you, and it might get you out of your cocoon a little bit to meet lost people, talk about the gospel. So if you want to go with me, I'll be going this weekend at Summerfest. But uh, anyway, so I was a few years back doing this, and uh, one gentleman, to one of the questions on the three-question survey, he said, oh, yeah, me and Sadie, he said, you know, I've always been a Christian. Now that sounds pious, doesn't it? It sounds safe, like I've always been a Christian, but that's actually incorrect. No one is just always a Christian. Now, maybe he meant something by that. I don't know. I didn't pursue the conversation. But at face value, that actually is is just not unfortunate. That can actually be very damning for preachers to even insinuate that, you know what, you can just always be a Christian. Because it misses the point of this actual text as well as other ones, like 1 Thessalonians 1 and John 3, that actually we come in contact with the gospel by hearing, receiving, and taking our stand on it. And that's how and when we're saved. You see, there is a when component to the gospel. We're not just always saved. That's no more true than if I said to you, hey, how long uh, uh, have you um, been alive? How long have you been in existence? You said, oh, I've always been in existence. Well, no, you haven't always been in existence. There was a point in which you what? You were born. Now, now that's clarity. You have a what? Birthday. As you go back to a place and you say, hey, on this day I was born. You haven't always just existed. You weren't and then you were, correct? 
But even in that clarity, there's some mystery because actually on your birthday, you are actually already alive. That's just been when you became visible. You were alive before that. You were alive at conception by God's power in your mother's womb. And you lived there, safe, secure. And then a few months after that, you came out. The world heard you and saw you. So we say, oh, on this day I was born. We don't just say, on your birthday, thanks for celebrating my always existence. We don't say that. We have a marker, a time and place, because at a certain point you came in contact with the world. Even though there's some mystery to that because you actually were alive before that, yes. I think that's the, the gist in salvation, which is why Jesus, when talking with Nicodemus, made much the same point. He said, Nicodemus, every person must be born again, indicating that just as there was a place and time in which you were born, you haven't always existed there's a place and time in which you are born again. Now, granted, the Spirit does that in a mysterious way. It blows where it wants to, He blows where He wants to blow. He said that to Nicodemus. But make no mistake, the Spirit does blow in actual space and time and bring people to life. And when that occurs, generally speaking, there's a, a we kind of know that, and we might even say it like this, as our spiritual birthday. It may not be the exact day or moment, But if you've been born again, it happened at a specific place and time of contact with the gospel. And that's when God brought you to life. Now, you may think I'm going to ask you right now, when was the time? I don't want you to hear that question as if I'm asking for a specific day or hour. I want to ask you that question with this in mind. Has there been a season, a time in which you know that you came in contact with the gospel and heard it and took your stand on it because you haven't always just been a Christian. There is a birth place. Now, what I've discovered in our ministry here, and I hope you'll hear this is some of the mystery, okay? There's good clarity, but there's some mystery, is that sometimes I've met people, they'll visit church, let's say, and they're really intrigued. And for like three or four weeks, maybe six weeks, two months, they just can't get enough. And then they'll come and say, Todd, I don't know what's happening, but something's going on inside me. I'd like to talk to you. Come to find out, at some point in those six weeks, God regenerated them, brought them to life. He saved them. Through the gospel, they heard, they believed, but they weren't sure how to express it. But they knew something had changed. Their appetites were different. Something uh, transformed in them internally. And so they're curious, like, what's going on? And so we'll talk, and they say, oh, so that's what happened. I got saved. And they'll say, yeah, I remember on that Sunday when you invited folks to pray to receive Christ. I remember praying. So that's what was going on. That's what happened. It could be in a small group. There's lots of sometimes mystery to this. But what there isn't is a lack of clarity that the gospel does come in contact with us. And if you can't recall, at least in some general sense, Yes, there was a time in my life when I was brought face-to-face with the, with the gospel and I responded to it. You might want to take some time to think through, are you genuinely converted? I'm not saying it depends upon you, but I'm saying that when something of that magnitude happens, it's hard to imagine you not remembering it and then being aware of it. That's what I'm saying. 
Like if you had said to me, Todd, are you married? I'd say, yeah, I think so. I'm not sure. I, I would say what? I would know when I got married. I'm definitely, I definitely belong to that woman. So it's hard to imagine regeneration occurring and, having, and not having some sense that at this point, this area, this space, this season of my life, man, God began to change me. So I would do this. If you just don't really know, but you know now you are born again, you're like, Todd, I know I believe. That's what counts the most, first of all, just knowing that you believe, knowing that you are saved now. But if you're curious about when it occurred, just think back to your life and think this. When did my appetites begin to change? When was that season when suddenly my life began to take a different trajectory? That might help you in that, okay? I don't think you have to know an exact day. Some people do. That's great. Some people don't. I do tend to think you'll know a general time frame. Like, for instance, you may be able to say, I don't know when, but I remember my parents really teaching me the gospel when I was very young, early. And at some point in my childhood, I just, I believed what my parents taught me about Jesus and his death and his resurrection, and I believed. As a child, I came to be a Christian. Like, that, that suffices for me. Now, I'm the ultimate judge. Does that make sense? That's not specific, and yet it's, it's not uh, vague. You may say, man, all through high school, I just wasn't sure what I believed. Uh, I was just kind of pretending, but then when I got to college, I, I really met some folks who understood the gospel, and I heard it, and, and somewhere in my college years, man, God just saved me and changed me. It may be that testimony, or it may be that you have a specific day. I, I'm not here to try to argue for a birth date mentality. I'm here to say, you can't say, I've always been a Christian. That's theologically impossible. Are you with me? So there has to be a point in which you came in contact with the gospel. When you did what this, what this here says, you heard it, you received it, took your stand on it, and you were saved by it, and you're holding fast to it. When did that begin? I would say the first part of this grid contains the courage to ask yourself, how, where is that in my life? Does your life have the accent of like, yeah, probably when I was a kid, things just kind of yeah, begin to change, you know? I just got some new appetites. I, I've been following Christ ever since. Or as a teenager or an adult, maybe last week, maybe some of you will leave here and it will say, today, God saved me. Okay? There's gospel contact. That's the first grid. It's not just contact, though, we're not just saying, well, you've got to come in contact with some kind of message, and then if you'll do something, you'll fill a card out, you'll walk an aisle, that counts. It's not just contact, it's contact with the right content. Look what he says next, 3 through 8. He says, I delivered to you as of first importance that which I also received. And he basically mentions two elements to the content of the gospel. I say it's only two primarily because of the phrase, in accordance with the scriptures. So here is God's revealed plan of saving people as shown throughout the Old Testament. That's what the word scriptures there refers to. He says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and then that he was buried and was raised in accordance with the scriptures. So God has spoken in time past through the Holy Word that there was a Messiah to come. That's what the word Christ refers to. He would be the one who would die for our sins and be raised to satisfy God's wrath, showing him to be the Lamb of God and the victor of God. So when Jesus did both of these things, he proved himself to fulfill all of God's promises. So he is the one who saves. He's the one 
who is our Savior. Now, the rest of these phrases, that he appeared to Cephas, to more than 500, to James, that he appeared to Paul, the ascension, different things, those are all modifiers to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the real primary elements in this text, the real core essential message of the gospel, the content that you cannot be saved without, listen very carefully, church, is the death and resurrection of a specific person, Jesus Christ. Now, if you have two ears, listen extremely intently. If you... believed truth that wasn't about Jesus and you think that's how you got saved, then you have believed falsely. All right? It's not just belief. It's not a positive thinking religion. It's an actual contact sport, yes, but it's contact with specific content. Specifically about a person, the God-man Jesus, and his actions on our behalf to die and be raised. Does that make sense? And sometimes I hear this in America. Yeah, I, I, just, yeah, I just went forward. I just raised my hand. I just filled out a card. What did you say you were believing? I don't know. Whatever that guy said, I mean, I just felt like I should raise my hand. Like, okay, so you had a, an experience, and so you had some kind of contact, but you don't know what you believed. Man, that's shaky ground, church. Are you with me? And this may fly in your face a bit. You may find yourself a little uncomfortable. I need to make sure you understand. Paul spends the bulk of these first 11 verses really hitting hard that there is specific content that we have to come in contact with. So the gospel is not just contact sensitive. The gospel's content sensitive. The right information matters. So if what you believed wasn't the truth about Jesus, your belief is false belief. Paul emphasizes this in other of his writings, the specific aspects of our belief. Like notice Romans 1.16. Is this on the screen, Alan? I'm not sure if it is. Yeah, look at this passage. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of what? The gospel. Why is he not ashamed of it? For it is what? The power of God for what? Salvation. In other words, human effort is not the power of God. A neat experience is not the power of God. There's a specific set, uh, there's a specific set of details that formulate salvific power. It's called the gospel. And what is the gospel? The, primarily the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you don't believe those things, if you don't adhere and trust those, you're not born again. No matter how many cards you filled out, how many crusades you went to, how many hands you raised, the contact must be with the right content. doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Greek. It's in the gospel that the righteousness of God is revealed. If you move on in Romans, you'll find that in chapter 10, he begins to talk about how these beliefs are essential to salvation. I don't know if we have Romans 10 up there. If not, let me just read for you what he says in Romans 10. A lot of you will be familiar with these verses. But he talks about how one must believe with the heart. 
and must confess with the mouth. But what must they believe and confess? Here's Romans chapter 10. Listen very carefully about verses 9 and 10. He says, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. In other words, there's a specific amount of information. Okay, Jesus Christ is Lord. I've got to have that content in my confession. And believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. Then you will be saved. With the heart one believes and is justified. With the mouth one confesses and is saved. He comes to the end and then talks about how there is this need to to preach this gospel because how can they call on him in whom they've not believed? How are they to believe in him in whom they've never heard? How can they hear without someone preaching? So we must send those to preach so folks can hear because the content matters. Here's the last verse, verse 17. So faith comes from hearing, but watch this, and hearing through the word of Christ. It's the Old Testament word for Messiah. So we must preach Christ crucified. He's the fulfillment of everything God promised. He lived, he died, he rose again. His name is Jesus. And when one believes on Jesus Christ as God's fulfillment of all he promised to save us from our sins, one can be saved. Until then, one cannot. So the gospel's contact sensitive and the gospel's content sensitive. These are the first two layers of this grid in this chapter. So I'd like to ask you, if you do recall a season, a time frame in which you believed, did you believe the right stuff? Both matter. I want to just take a moment and address the mystery of this as well, because I mentioned to you there's mystery and clarity in all these elements. And this is the hardest one to express. Because our inability to sometimes express it perfectly does not diminish God's ability to save perfectly. To that, we should all shout, Amen. Right? And I've met people, and, and, and they're genuinely born again. The accent of their life is no doubt a gospel content, a contact and content. But then when they share it, I get real nervous, like, ooh, boy, that, that just sounds shaky. <laughs> I'll be honest with you, okay? As I talked to them more, I was like, oh, they, they got this. And sometimes I, I remember my life, I've tried to express things like, man, I don't think I get this to be able to express it fully, but I know that God's done it. And so sometimes our humanness means we're going to fail at expressing how God has changed us and has saved us in the best way. It doesn't mean he hasn't saved us. Are you with me? So you've got to just kind of grapple with this mystery. It's the same on the other end of the spectrum. There are people who can express it perfectly. And they're lost. Why? Because it's not this mantra that we chant like some equation that we can just throw in our life without even meaning it. There is a sense in which it's a heart matter. Are you with me? So there's the heart and the mouth. And and it may take some time for those to get in sync sometimes. I recall baptizing an individual. He was in his early 20s. And I had met with him several times. He got saved. And, and to be honest with you, radically saved. I know we all are radically saved. But he just uh, visibly just began to change. And so in talking with him, he seemed like he really had a grasp on it. And I'm a firm believer in quick baptisms. I think that's the biblical pattern. You know that. And so I said, let's, just, let's get you baptized. He said, yeah, let's do it. And so went to the baptism tank in front of the church. I said, hey, share, man, what God's doing for you. And what came out was the oddest sounding story I've ever heard, I think. 
There's a couple of folks here who were there that day, and they may remember this. He said something about a car wash, and that when he saw the car wash, he knew God had washed him, and then he just looked at me. I'm like, oh, and I'm nervous, and the whole church is hearing this, I mean, there's nothing, and I could have corrected him, but I thought that might be embarrassing. I just didn't really know what to do as a young pastor, and I was trying to be honorable, and yet I've had these theological, like, oh, this is not, you know, I was just struggling. I met him a few years after that, and the guy is just uh, growing like a, like a weed. He's doing so well. He's genuinely born again. He just had a moment when he just didn't express it well. Sometimes crowds are not people's best environment, uh, getting in front of people. So the, all these things weigh into this, this mystery that if at times you say, well, I didn't really say that the best, it doesn't mean that God didn't save you in the best way. Are you with me? You've just got to kind of work through this. I'm trying to be honest with you about this. Because it's really the heart that's driving everything, and yet there is this aspect of the mouth confessing it. I think the point I need to make sure is this. It's really, is their belief that Jesus is the only way to be made right with God? And can that be expressed in some point, in some way? And as that, we, we grow in that, yes. But that belief that Jesus Christ is the only way is essential to salvation. And you need to realize, I, I would say generally, this is what you embrace. As a church, I know we embrace this. This is what we believe. But if this makes you worry about your interaction with the culture, you've got a long road ahead of you. Because our culture is a million miles away from exclusivity, singularity. We are in a, we are in a pluralistic, many ways to God culture. And if you buy into that, you might want to lay this grid of your life and ask yourself, am I really born again? Because the Bible teaches it is actually specific information about a singular individual, the God-man Jesus, that actually saves people from their sins. All right? So it's the right contact. It's the right content. As those things intersect, something happens. We experience gospel change. Here's another thing that regeneration necessitates or mandates. And Paul lays this out in the last remaining verses of this first section. I believe verses 9 through 11, in which he talks about his own change. He says he was a persecutor of the church, and because of that, he says, I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle. And yet I am an apostle, but it's all because of the grace of God, he says in verse 10. In fact, his emphasis is on the grace of God throughout these verses. Look what he says. By the grace of God, I am what I am. His grace to me was not in vain. In other words, when it showed up, it, it did its job. It changed me. He says, I am what I am. That leans to this understanding that there was a positional change with Paul. He went from being one thing to being another thing. And yet he says here that he worked hard with this grace, this grace fueled this kind of change that was ongoing in him, that was progressive and practical. So I think you see two kinds of changes here, both fueled and empowered by God's grace. Instantaneous change. We go from being lost to found. From being um, orphaned to being adopted. From being sinners to being saints. From being Wicked and unrighteous to being uh, righteous in God. From being enemies of God to being a friend of God. 
This is an instantaneous change that we don't understand fully, but God does it through Jesus by his grace. Are you with me? There's also then a, a gradual change in which we work with this grace um, to serve the Lord and to live different lives. It's grace that fuels all of this, however. So we don't lay claim and we don't say it's about us. It's all about God and his grace, but we do experience the effects of that. And Paul here's example is he went from persecutor to preacher all by the grace of God. Now, when you think about change, let me just simply help you understand how to view it. And this is another thing that's going to probably, you need to kind of wrestle through this, okay? I want to lay this on you politely, but you need to hear this. When we hear about change, whether it's instantaneous or gradual, we often think this way. I've got to do different stuff. I'm not going to disagree with that, but that's not the primary question to ask. The primary question when you're looking at change is not, am I doing things differently? The question to ask is, am I craving different things? Here's why. Because when God changes you, he changes first your appetites. That's how he changes your actions. You see, Jesus Christ is the only one who promises to change you from the inside out. Every other quote-unquote savior, every other religion, ideology says, we'll change you from the outside in. We'll pressurize you. We'll conform you to fit us. We'll make sure that you can experience change from the outside in. We'll get to you and make it work. Only biblical Christianity says we will transform you. God will come and put a new heart in you and a new spirit. And what you'll see is the heart change, the appetites change, and then the actions change. And so I, this may stun you, but you should wrestle with, this, wrestle with this. If you're asking, has my life changed? Look at your appetites and not your actions. Because many people can duct tape good works to their life for years. But inwardly, when they lay down their head on their pillow at night, when they're driving and they're all alone, they wonder why they crave so desperately all the things they craved when they were lost. Like they, they know deep inside, I'm no different. I want that sin desperately, but I can't get it. I can't go after it because it would make me look bad. It would bring, and so they just kind of maintain this image, but inwardly, they really, they love sin. They love their sin. Now, you may be thinking, Todd, we all struggle. We all fight. You're right. I fight sin. You fight sin. And therein lies the key. If you're not fighting, you might want to ask yourself, have I really experienced change? See, fighting sin, the struggle, man, that's a good sign, isn't it? I mean, can you just kind of resonate with me for a moment? That there is no sin in the struggle. The devil comes to you, and man, he's wanting to strangle you. He's tempting you. In some theological manner, be thankful that that's a struggle because it's a sign you've got another nature in you warring against that old nature. Amen? What should worry you if it's never a struggle and there's never a fight? It should worry you if your sin 
never abhors you. It should worry you if repentance is not a normal posture of your life. And I don't mean repentance to salvation. But if when you do sin, if it doesn't weigh heavily upon you, if you don't go to your spouse and say, you know, I I should never have said that. Those words, man, they violated you. They broke your heart. They hurt God's heart. Will you please forgive me? When you're not desperate to reconcile, yeah, that's what should worry you. You see, 1 John teaches us that it's not our sin. Watch this, you're going to be shocked. It's not our sin that really is the big deal. Jesus took care of that. It's our attitude about it that's the big deal. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God's able to just uh, forgive us. Is he saying that sin's the big deal? Not really. He's saying in that text, the big deal is your attitude about your sin. And if your sin never bothers you, if repentance is a constant posture, if, it, if you're never abhorred at what sometimes you do and say and think, if there's never a struggle, if you never grow weary, like, God, deliver me from this body of death like Paul prayed, that's when you should wonder, has there ever been any gospel change inside me? You see, it's really not about are you doing different things. It's are you craving different things. Because Jesus, first and foremost, changes our appetites. That's how he changes our actions. And it does take time. It's a progressive act. It takes a lifetime. Amen, church? But there is this gradual, progressive change that occurs in the people of God once we realize, wow, we're instantaneously made righteous and then now that begins to kind of show its effects over a period of a lifetime. That's just one of the signs. That's one of the accents that your life speaks of genuine salvation. Can I remind you of what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 17? If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passing away All things are becoming new. This is the experience, the reality of someone genuinely born again. It takes time, it's a struggle, it's hard, but it does happen. And so the third part of this grid, as Paul's experience shows us, is gospel change. And then I just need to close with this understanding that what does Paul then say he does in verse 11? And I love the way this book ends. Look with me, verse 11. He says, and so what do we do? We preach and you believed. Notice in verse 1, these are the same words he used. He says, I remind you that I preached to you and you believed. See that in verses 1 and 2? So Paul bookends this understanding of real salvation, of real gospel-driven regeneration by saying, the gospel is preached, that's actual content, you believed, you came in contact with it, and change occurs. All three of these are really the grid by which we can kind of see in our life. Am I truly born of God? Is there an accent in my life's language that says, I'm not from around here? (laughs) Let's touch down on our take-home truth. And then we'll uh, wrap things up. I'll just take your questions uh, via video tomorrow, okay? Let's touch down on this take-home truth because it just reviews for us really what we've 
said all morning, and we'll wrap this up. That regeneration mandates, will you say these next few words with me? That regeneration mandates what? Gospel contact, gospel content, and gospel change. I hope you're you're hearing that. hope you're seeing that in the text. And all three of these act as the mysteriously clarifying evidence that God has supernaturally brought spiritual life to our dead bones. Because we desire Ezekiel 37. We want God to breathe on us, right? So how does that occur? How can we know if that's happened? 1 Corinthians 15. We've heard the gospel. We've responded to it. It's actually specific, precise information about Christ. And then we've watched it do its work in our life. None of that is of us. God brings every bit of that to the table. And yet we receive that and take our stand on it. And by that we are being saved. So the question to ask yourself this morning is this. When I lay that grid over my life, is there an accent that I've been born again? When people hear my life talk, would they say, wow, you're not from around here, are you? (laughs) Would they say, yeah, there's something about you that's different. Now, I want to be a faithful pastor to you. And so I hope that you would say yes to these three grid-like questions. That you'd be able to say, yes, I know of a general season. A, a, some kind of time frame in which I came in contact with the gospel and responded to it. I, I hope that you would say yes to that. There's, there's some mystery there, yes, but there's also a lot of clarity. Hope that you would say, yes, I believe the right information. I didn't just have an experience. I had a gospel-centered encounter about Jesus Christ and who he was and what he did. Yes. Is there some mystery there? Yes, and sometimes not everyone expresses it perfectly. But there's a lot of clarity there too. And I hope that you would have a yes to, is my life changing? Is it overnight? No. Is it always perfect? And do we sin? Uh, It's not always perfect. Yes, we do sin. Is there a struggle? Yes, but I hope that you would say, generally speaking, my life shows gospel change. I want that for you. So if, if in any of these categories, if any parts of this grid are laid over your life, and there's this clear and present, no way. That's not me. I want to be a faithful pastor to you and ask you to examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. I don't say that out of superiority or arrogance. I say that because I desperately want you to live life in an unstuck fashion, growing on to maturity, growing in the grace of our Lord and Savior. And if you've not been genuinely regenerated, if you're not authentically born from above, you're going to spin your wheels trying to change from the outside in and never make any real progress. And you'll be like the folks in Matthew 7. You'll do a lot of things for God. And then when you stand before God, he will say to you, I don't know you. You see, the road to hell 
is paved with a lot of good intentions and nice actions. But good intentions and nice actions are not what take us to heaven. Jesus takes us to heaven. God's Son, and specifically His death and resurrection on our behalf, that's what saves us. And when we are genuinely saved by that, we are changed by that. So this is the grid to get up under. And this morning, if you even right now are saying, man, I'm not really born again, would you just at this very moment just ask the Lord in His grace and mercy to save your soul? Would you just pray something like this in your seat? Lord Jesus, I believe that you are God's Son, God in the flesh among us. You came, you lived perfectly, you died in my place, and you were raised from the dead by God. And I believe that Only you can make me right with God. You forgave my sins on the cross. God, will you save me through Jesus today? And I can assure you, on behalf of God's word, he will keep his word to you, and he will save you, and he will start changing you. You see, that's what this take-home truth, this text says to us. That because of the gospel, watch this, change isn't just possible. That's what most preachers preach. That's what most churches kind of lean into. That's what most of us think. Yeah, believe in God and it's possible you'll change. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says when God comes in and regenerates and breathes on dead bones, change is promised. Have you authentically, genuinely believed in the gospel? Do you know that God has breathed on your dead bones? Then change isn't just possible, it's promised. Let's pray. We hope you enjoyed today's sermon. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons. Thanks for listening.